0: thanksgiving i titled the message give thanks to the lord for he is good because that is the way psalm 118 the psalm we'll be considering today begins it's a psalm of thanksgiving and it's not just a psalm of thanksgiving but in a, as a related theme it's a song of rejoicing the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous verse 15 says and it's a, it's a psalm of praise verse 21 i will praise you For you have answered me, and have become my salvation. A very fitting theme to consider this evening. And the reason why they are called to give thanks, which we see is because of the mercy, the loving kindness, the covenant love of our God, of their God and our God. So let's read this psalm together. And then dig into it and see what the Lord has for us from this psalm this evening. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures Forever, I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Now, as a psalm of thanksgiving, why would I pick this psalm to, to preach on? There are other psalms that also praise God. Many of them exalt the Lord our God in glorious ways and, and, and praise his name. There are several reasons, though, why this psalm is distinctive. Not, necess- not necessarily unique, but distinctive. The first one is that it's, this psalm is part of the, a group of psalms called the Hallel Psalms. And most of you are probably familiar with that category. The Hallel means praise God. Of course, we say all of them praise God. But these, these became Psalms 113 to 118, technically known as Hallel Psalms. And they were psalms that were sung in connection in particular with the Passover meal and also other hebrew festivals as people use these psalms the people of god use these psalms to remember the great redemption of god from their slave masters in egypt that great event that typified the future for them death and resurrection of the lord jesus christ in providing ultimate salvation from our spiritual enemy sin and so of course these psalms, including this psalm, were the psalms that Jesus sang at that Last Supper, that Passover meal with his disciples And Matthew 26.30 says that they got up when they sang a hymn and they would have, that hymn would have either been this psalm or Psalms 115 to 118. This psalm was also possibly used and had a special place of, of in the worship of God as we see in Ezra. In this passage in Ezra, the people have come back from exile and they're beginning to build the temple again. And it says in Ezra chapter 3 when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now it could have been this psalm or it could have been Psalm 136 where the entire psalm has a refrain that can be sung responsively. that God's mercy endures forever. One commentator I read said that he thought it was this psalm that they that they sang so so this has a special place in all the psalms which sing and about the glory of god and the praise god this psalm had a special place but this psalm also is distinctive because it's a messianic psalm a messianic psalm now some people say well all the psalms are messianic because you can preach christ you can see christ in all the psalms and that is true but those psalms that are are prophetic are those psalms that To speak not simply in types and shadows about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the promised Messiah, but they speak very directly, prophetically about him, specifically about his office as king or his office as redeemer. His office as king, we see psalms that we might say are messianic, like Psalm 2 or Psalm 110 or Psalm 72 or Psalm 45, Psalms that speak specifically about his suffering and death and to provide redemption for his people will be psalms like Psalm 22 and this Psalm 118 will be those that will be considered messianic because of how directly and pointedly they speak about this Messiah. And this psalm is also in itself truly a beautiful picture of this redemption and of this savior that god has sent and we see that in the fact that that christ himself uses at least two sections of this psalm to show, in the new testament to show how they speak of him and of course uh, the elsewhere in the new testament we also see affirmation of that in terms of these two places where the this psalm is specifically shown to be a psalm pointing to christ and we see beautiful names and descriptions and imagery of our messiah all throughout this psalm he's merciful he's a helper he's trustworthy he's deliverer he's salvation he's strength song he's light he's the gate of righteousness he's a sacrifice he's a chief cornerstone and in terms of the praise and the way the praise is laid out here we see we see an intensity. I don't know if you caught as we read, and even as you sang this p- part of this psalm, the in, the repetition that exists throughout, in particular the first part of the psalm. There's a lot of repetition in the psalm from the beginning. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. We see intensity in worship in this psalm, and we see twice it said, "It is better to trust in the Lord. It is better." to trust in the Lord, intensity of faith. And then David says four times that he's surrounded by his enemy, intensity in the conflict with his enemy. And we see it said, in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them three times. Intensity again of faith, intensity of the, the felt need for God's deliverance for some some. Deliverance from this terrible plight, and then the right hand of the Lord, the right hand of the Lord, the right hand of the Lord, talking with intensity about god 's deliverance when he's called upon to deliver them and then another distinctive characteristic of this psalm is one which I talked about last time I was here and talked about psalm seventy two and for those of you that weren't familiar with with that category of poetry and that concept. It was the idea that, that Psalm 72 was, was written as a chiasm, in a chiastic structure. And this psalm also seems to be written in a chiastic structure. And so to remind you what that means, it means that the psalm is written in such a way that the beginning and the end communicate the same theme and are tied together. And then the, the second and the second last sections of the psalm have a connection, and then the third and the third last section have a connection together in the psalm. And then, however many sections there are to the psalm, and then the purpose of the chiastic structure is to focus our minds and our hearts in on the central, the central components of that psalm. And so, if you pictured the psalm sort of a, as a, oh, it was a diamond or, a tri- or, or, or an arrow, an arrow. So it's getting closer and closer from the from the, uh, first, and the sec- first and the last, to so the second and the second last, third to the third last, to, to, when, to the center of the psalm, you can picture it or diagram it like that. And the center of this psalm focuses in on those verses 19 and 20 about the gates of righteousness. But what we see in the psalm is that verses 1 to 4 and verse 29 extol God for his mercy. So we're brought into the message of the psalm and carried out of the message of the psalm extolling our God for his mercy that is everlasting. And then in verses 5 to 9... And verses 25 to 28, we have the psalmist calling upon the Lord for deliverance. So, verses 5 to 9, the psalmist is calling upon the Lord for deliverance from a military, from a geopolitical enemy. And in verses 25 to 28, the psalmist is calling upon the Lord for a savior, a deliverer who can save from our ultimate enemy, sin and deal with our ultimate problem, which is estrangement from God. And then verses 5 to 9 and verses 25 to 28, they talk about God's answer to that prayer and his sending of deliverance. And so verses 5 to 9 talk about, or verses 10 to 14 talk about God sending deliverance from this military foreign enemy. And verses 22 to 24 talk about the sending of, Of a redeemer. And then verses 15 to 18 and verse 21 describe the thanksgiving and the rejoicing of God's people at God sending a deliverer. And then, as I said, we're introduced at the thematic center of the psalm to that theme of righteousness, which, of course, is central to. To the gospel. So it's a very simple outline, a very simple message in this psalm of praise and thanksgiving. The psalmist faces an enemy that is causing him great distress. He cries out to God for deliverance, for a deliverer. God hears and answers, and the people rejoice. And then in the second half of this psalm, we see the same theme but this time focused very directly and overtly on the need of salvation and God's promise of a redeemer who would provide a way to God, a way back to God through his righteousness imputed to us, those who believe on him and repent of our sin. And so, of course, in doing another survey of a psalm, I'm not going to be Drilling down deeply into every part of it. There are many sermons that could come out of this psalm. And there's many places where it would be a benefit to you. I'm sure in your times of subsequent study and devotion. To come back to this psalm. Maybe using some of the the things. Some of the points mentioned here. As places. As jumping off points. For digging deeper. And seeing what else the Lord might have. For your blessing and encouragement. As as you study this psalm, even yourselves and in your family worship. So I just want to touch down uh, on one point, hopefully in each section fairly briefly on each uh, in each section of this psalm. So verses one to four, then this explosion of praise that brings us into the message of this psalm of thanksgiving. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good; for His mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say his mercy endures forever. In that section, I just want to focus your attention this evening on the word now. Notice it says in verses 2, 3, and 4, now. Let Israel now say, let the house of Aaron now say, let those who fear the Lord now say. I don't know if you find it just as easy to give thanks to the Lord And to acknowledge that his mercy endures forever, regardless of your providences. If you're facing providences that you would call good providence, and providence that you would call hard or bad providence, are you able to, in either one or the other, are you able to equally confidently, equally enthusiastically come before the Lord in those times and exalt him and thank him because his mercy endures forever, because he is a God who is good? Or do you find it easier to give thanks to God for his mercy during those providences, during those times, those circumstances that you would be able to characterize as good, as ones that you would choose for yourself, as ones that satisfy you. Well, this, this call for Israel and for the house of Aaron and for all those who fear the Lord, which would be each one here who's trusting in Christ, is to always be able to say his mercy endures forever. To always be able to thank God because his mercy endures forever. Even if you have to do it by faith. And especially when you have to do it by faith to be able to say now, not waiting until your providence, your situation, your circumstances get better, but now, being able to now say to God, you are good, your mercy endures forever. Your covenant love endures forever forever then if we move into the next section of the psalm where the psalmist who it's not controversial to say would be King David is in a situation of distress and he says right off the bat I called on the Lord in distress King David I called on the Lord in distress the Lord answered me and set me in a broad place the Lord is on my side I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. And we learn later on in verse 10, the next verse, that it's nations. The situation is that nations are surrounded and This is a military distress. This is a military problem. This is war. This is conflict. This is what you might call geopolitical situation in our our terminology or a matter of international relations and nations going to war against each other. And God's people find themselves surrounded. And so David as king is in distress. This is a distressful situation. It's one which does not look good for the people of God does not look like one that they can escape from and so he calls upon God in his distress and we note in verses 8 to 9 that he says it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes he doesn't say it's better to trust in the Lord than if the Lord doesn't Come through according to our timing well then, then we can go and, uh, and, and put our confidence in, in some other strategy that we've come up with ourselves or in some, put our confidence in somebody else or in some other idea it's better to trust in the Lord at first and then if the Lord doesn't answer our prayers the way we want then we can put confidence in our princes no it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man and that's the call to us as well whatever your distress is Whatever my distress is, our challenge is to put our trust in the Lord alone. He will maybe use some of these men, some of these people, uh, as his means to accomplish to accomplish these ends. We, we, we read about, you know, after this, uh, David talks about, I destroyed them, but he did so in the name of the Lord. But we must know in our hearts as we face challenges and struggles in this life, that we are truly putting our trust in the Lord. And the evidence of that is if we're walking in righteousness and walking in obedience to him as we seek his help in our distress. It's often easy to have a plan B to, to hedge our belief. Maybe not hedge our best, but hedge our beliefs with a plan B. Perhaps in financial matters you might have the wise conviction that it's important to avoid debt but if you're in a difficult situation you need something and you don't have the funds for it and how is the Lord going to provide and well if the Lord doesn't provide instead of saying well instead of waiting longer or, or being creative in a biblical way or saying maybe maybe I don't really need that as much as a, I think I do well maybe plan B well oh, it's okay to, to borrow for this thing even though I really didn't think that it was appropriate to before or maybe in politics, in politics, well, instead of voting our conscience, voting for righteous men for office, we'll vote for the person who's better than the rest of them who we think has a chance of getting into office. You folks here are well-entrenched, involved with the, with CHP, so I don't need to say anything more about, about that. Um, you know, single, single people who are single and they're not finding a spouse, well, maybe the things that I was holding out for in a spouse in terms of the criteria that i understand from scripture maybe maybe this one's not as important as a as i thought it was maybe i can i can fudge on this or fudge on that because uh we're getting older or maybe in marriage we find situations in marriage our marriages where they generate conflict they're sources of hardship and uh or shame or awkwardness as we talk and it's easy to just get to that stage in certain things where we just decide we're not going to talk about them anymore we're not going to we're not going to discuss them and instead of pursuing uh an open transparent one flesh relationship we can close off part of our part of our lives to our spouses and say no it's too painful or it's, it's just constant conflict we haven't figured out how to talk about that in a constructive way uh, and we don't want to go and get help from others or or, or just do the right thing. And so in different ways, in different areas of our lives, we can have a plan B um, that we might fall back on if we don't truly put our trust in the Lord, if we decide that putting our confidence in ourselves and our own resourcefulness or in others uh, is better than trusting in the Lord. But we must see from David's example here the importance of devoting. Our faith, ourselves wholly to the Lord as we seek his will and walk this walk in this world in the face of our challenges and difficulties. The Lord uses these challenges to strengthen our faith and to help us to learn to trust in him more and more. And then we come to the place where we learn about God sending his deliverance that's cried out for from David. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. So I just want to touch down here on verse 12, where David says, these nations surrounded me like bees. These, they surrounded me like bees. Calvin makes a, the point helpfully. Uh, John Calvin in, in his commentary says, Bees, their outrageous fury is set forth. Okay, the, the nation's outrageous fury is set forth by David in comparing them to bees, which, though not possessed of much strength, are very fierce. And when in their insensate fury they attack a person, they occasion no little fear. There's no doubt people here who have frantically tried to run away avoiding bees, whether it's one or half a dozen or a whole swarm of bees out here in the country somewhere, or you've had to uh, help and comfort a child uh, who has... Uh, in that circumstance, and uh, so most people, if not everybody here, knows the fear that is engendered by, by the idea of bees chasing you. Well, there's only one other place I could find where there is a reference in the Old Testament to bees, at least in this context. And so God's people, as they're reading this, as they're singing this psalm, and they come to this, they surrounded me like bees. their minds might have gone to this situation. And this is in Deuteronomy chapter 1, where Moses is recounting the scenario where the spies came back from the promised land. Joshua and Caleb says, we can go up and defeat them. But the rest of the, ten, the other 10 spies said, no, they're giants. They're too much for us. We can't go up. And they struck fear into God's people and God's people rebelled against God and said, no, we're not going to go up. And so then... God pronounces judgment, including the wilderness uh, of 40 years that they would have to suffer in. And so facing that, the people said, we don't want that. We should have obeyed. Let's go up and fight these guys after all. And so they went up and God warned them through Moses that no, you better not. This time I won't be going up with you. You're trying to solve this problem your own way. You're trying to redeem yourselves. You're not walking in submission to me. You had the opportunity to obey the first time and you didn't. And so... In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 44 to 45, Moses is recounting how those enemies pushed God's people back because God was not with them at that time. And the Amorites who dwelt in that mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do and drove you back from Seir to Hormah. And so the people who are reading this might think back to that and say, these nations are surrounding us like bees, like they attacked us, then we have no hope. And yes, so the point here is that God's blessing upon David and his people in this particular time meant that even though the nations surrounded, surrounded them like bees, they could be victorious. And they were because God came to the help and deliverance of his people. And even though the nations surrounded them like bees, God still delivered them. Now you may be feeling surrounded. We can be feeling surrounded in a variety of ways by enemies in our day. You can be feeling surrounded by by the enemies of, of your flesh and the devil and the world, you can be res- trying to resist sin as your attempt- the temptations come from your residual sinful nature and your flesh attacking you and tempting you and you, 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 you fight sin, you fight temptation there and then there's an attack from the world as you're, you're, you're attempted by, by friends or colleagues at work or billboards that you go by or something that's on the TV or the internet and, and then you, you're resisting there and then the devil attacks you and you can feel surrounded in your daily battle with sin and temptation as you seek to walk righteously before the Lord. You can feel surrounded in our society as, as society around us is becoming more and more wicked and more and more overt in its ungodliness, attacking, attacking, and trying to censor and keep out of public debate competing opinions competing views whether it's around covid whether it's around so-called transgender issues whether it's around critical race theory wanting to even increasingly in canada censor discussion about abortion as though that wasn't already effectively the situation that we we lived in uh, we've lived in for years but more and more we, we just see the, this wickedness just surrounding us and we can feel overwhelmed if we don't put our trust in the Lord and don't have confidence in his great deliverance and his promised protection for us his people and as we trust him we will see we will see that deliverance We will see that deliverance in one way or or another. We'll see it in in our society as the church is reformed and revived and becomes the light that it needs to in society again. Or we will see that deliverance through death as we enter into the presence of God for eternity. And then in the next section we have the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous as the people celebrate their God who has provided this deliverance from this military enemy, from these wicked nations. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So the gratitude is put in the right place. The gratitude is put in the right place for this deliverance. The people recognize that it was God who did it. His right hand came to provide deliverance. And so they are rejoicing. And the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteousness. That's not a picture of of people quietly bowing bowing their heads and folding their hands in a quiet prayer of thanksgiving in the pew. That's the voice of celebration and thanksgiving in the tents dancing and singing celebrating their god for his great victory over this enemy when they thought that all hope was lost and then we see at the end of this section where david gets personal he says the lord has chastened me severely but he has not given me over to death here we see the geopolitical becoming the personal and we need to see that in whatever suffering, whatever challenges we're facing in this world. We might see all kinds of things going on, dynamics that we say, well, we had no part in these things taking place. So there's persecution against the church or we, we face, we face uh, Christian and non-Christian uh, farmers alike face the same kind of weather that can be helpful or less than helpful in terms of the development of their crops. We, we're all facing inflation and the cost of so many things going up, uh, making it harder to make ends meet in our, in our lives. But when, even when these big trends and dynamics are taking place, we're not as Christians just to respond to them at that level. But we need to realize that God, through these things, is also working personally in the lives of of all people. And Paul or David saw that here. He saw that even though this was a military battle, a military problem that impacted all of Israel, and he saw, he understood that they were receiving the blessing of God as God's righteous people, he nevertheless saw that there was something for him to learn personally in this. And so he said, the Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. David as the king was experiencing God's personal chastening even in the midst of this geopolitical conflict. Spurgeon well says about this passage, chastisement is sent to keep successful saints humble, to make them tender towards others, and to enable them to bear the high honors which their heavenly friend puts upon them. Or Calvin, the main thing in adversity is to know that we are laid low by the hand of God and that this is the way which he takes to prove our allegiance to arouse us from our torpidity or laziness, to crucify our old man, to purge us from our filthiness, to bring us into submission and subjection to God, and to excite us to meditate on the heavenly life. So even when we're facing circumstances that we see as evidence of God's judgment perhaps on our society, and, and circumstances that we say, well, we didn't do anything to bring these things upon us or upon this society or whatever nevertheless we need to examine what the lord might be wanting to do in each of our lives through these challenges and these hardships that he brings before us and then in this central component of 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 the psalm we come to verses 19 to 20 open to me the gates of righteousness i will go through them and i will praise the lord this is the gate of the lord through which the righteous shall enter and we Remember that in that day, the David, the day that David lived, that often military victory was seen as evidence of the God's favor on the victor and hit the God's declaration of righteousness in the cause of the victor. And we know that there's no true gods behind these false gods, but we know that when God came to the defense of His people, He was coming to the defense of His people to express His blessing to fulfill his promise, his covenant promise of protection. Because ultimately, even in their sin, they were a set apart, holy people, set apart by God for himself. And there was always a remnant that he was preserving among those people. And so there we see in this illustration of God's great delivering work in the lives of his people, we see this illustration of of David crying out to God for deliverance, of David, of God Responding with deliverance and the people celebrating their God for that deliverance. And then we see the same thing the same message but even more significantly in the second half of the psalm as we see the picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ given to us very vividly. And so let's look at that and because of the chiastic structure we kind of have to look look at it backwards. First we have to look at verses 25 to 28. This is where the psalmist is crying out to God for a savior. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. So David is crying out to God for a redeemer in this prophetic portion of the psalm crying out for god to send a savior and that word prosperity oh lord i pray send now prosperity it's a word that comes from the word for rush for hurry for speedily i don't know how it got the connotation of prosperity in the hebrew culture but it comes from the idea of speedily so so paul or david is crying out to god to send salvation now. Urgently, we need your salvation now, O God. And then he says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. That's one of the places where, where Christ, that's one of the portions that Christ takes and applies to himself. When Christ is giving those woes, those judgments against the people of God and particularly the Jewish leaders, in Matthew 23, he ends By saying, see your house, that is Jerusalem, is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more, till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, when will God's enemies say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Well, I'll say that when Christ comes a second time in judgment and calls all nations to bow and all tongues to confess that Christ is Lord. And so Christ is applying this to himself and affirming his sovereignty over salvation and his eternal protection over the lives of those he has saved the message that we see and oh give thanks to the lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever and then perhaps the better known place in the new testament where we see blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord is is when the people are celebrating christ as king those who are with him as he enters Jerusalem for the last time on the donkey. And they're laying their cloaks and the palm branches down before before him. And they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. And they're, they're applying Psalm 118 to Jesus. Recognizing him as the Messiah. Perhaps they misunderstood and wanted him as a military Messiah to overcome Rome. But if they did, they forgot what else this passage says, which is bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. See, God's Messiah, in order to come in victory, also had to come as a suffering servant. He had to come as a sacrifice. And he was tied, he was bound to the cross where he suffered and died that gruesome physical death. But even worse, he died that spiritual death momentarily for us in seeing God God turn away from him and God judging us in him and bearing as he bore our sin on the cross so that we didn't have to bear that judgment for sin and we might have eternal life if our lives are found in him my old testament professor recently in an article on the horn symbolism in the old testament writes it this way the word translated horn is predominantly used in the old testament to refer to the altars in the tabernacle and temple for example horns are a distinctive feature of the altar of incense these horns likely took the shape of upward projections at the four corners of the altar god commanded that the high priest shall make atonement on its horns once a year which took place on the day of atonement, when the blood of a bull and a goat was put on the horns of the altar all around. Likewise, the sin offering called for the blood of a bull to be put on the horns of the altar. It was the blood of bulls and goats that symbolized atonement, but it was on the horns of the altar that blood atonement was symbolized. So as we see this call for a savior, we see how vividly it pictures the lord jesus christ and the suffering that he came to bear for us so the question comes to each one of us here have you trusted in the lord jesus christ have you have you personally repented of your sin have you put your faith in christ for your salvation this one who bore the sins of his people on this cross whose whose blood was shed when he was bound to the horns of the altar as a sacrifice for our sin that we might be saved so this was a call for a savior and then in verses 22 to 24 we read of god providing this redeemer the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone this was the lord's doing it is marvelous in our eyes this is the day the lord has made we will rejoice and be glad in it so there's that language of the chief cornerstone and we know that christ took that language and applied it to himself in mark chapter 12 verses 9 to 11 after he's given the parable of the tenants where he's judging the jewish leaders for their wickedness he says therefore what will the owner of the vineyard do he will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vine vineyard to others these religious leaders would not have the last word god would And God's last word was that he would send a redeemer. Have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And of course, the the apostles, Peter and Paul, reaffirmed, this imagery, this the, the, this symbolism of Christ, and and Peter in his in, in his sermon in Acts four talks about Christ as the chief cornerstone. And Peter also in his letter, one of his letters, First Peter, makes reference to Christ as the cornerstone, as does Paul in Ephesians chapter two. And there they talk just about not just about Christ as a cornerstone, but the cornerstone of what? Well, a building, a building of what? A building, as Peter puts it, of living stones. And one description of these living stones this building was that it would be a holy priesthood and one of the descriptions that paul gives is that it would be a holy temple and that's of course important as we as we come near to the end of our consideration of this psalm on verses 19 to 20 but before that we then get to the, the statement of thanksgiving psalm or verse 21 i will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation so david cried out for a savior prophetically here for God's people God promised God promised the Savior and affirms this promise in the chief cornerstone and the people exalt God and thank God for the provision of this Savior this promise to the line of David, this promise that someone a Savior, a Redeemer, a King would sit on the throne of David for eternity and then we come again the central component of this psalm. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. So why is that significant as we speak about the salvation the Lord has provided? Well, because righteousness is central to this message of the gospel. Righteousness is central to the gospel message. There is no gospel without righteousness. That's not our righteousness, but it's somebody else's righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, there's, there's much symbolism of gates and similar language and ideas in the Bible. We see, for example, that when Adam and, Adam and Eve sinned, there was a, an angel with a flaming sword put at the entrance to the Garden of Eden that gate, that entrance to the Garden of Eden after they were kicked out. So they could not get in. They could not get access to the tree of life on their own terms. And then we see the Tower of Babel. And Babel means gate of heaven. The people there in rebelling against God were wanting to build this tower to heaven. They wanted to get to heaven, get into the presence of God, get access to God on their own terms. And God confounded it by confounding their language. You cannot gain access to the presence of god on your own terms the gates remain closed to those who seek to gain access to the presence of god on their own terms the presence of god can only be accessed by those who are perfectly righteous because god cannot look upon sin and so the only ones who can enter through the gates of righteousness are those who can enter through covered in the righteousness of Christ. Christ is the gate. Christ is the gate of righteousness that opens the way for us into God's presence. You must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so we see at the end of our Bibles, in Revelation chapter 22, we saw near the beginning that when Adam and Eve sinned, Access to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden was blocked to them. The gate was blocked by the angel with the fiery sword. But through Christ, as those who walk in righteousness, as those who seek after righteousness, because we have been made the righteousness of Christ, Revelation 22:14 tells us, "Blessed are those who do His commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter through what? Through the gates, into the city." And so it's such a wonderful testimony in this Psalm to God's Savior and to God's salvation. God's people, as we see, and us with them, are compelled to, com- are compelled to proclaim, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever.